This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting-edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Welcome back to episode two on our methylation and epigenetic series. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the methylation map and kind of why it's important, kind of why it really gave us some insight and some understanding on some things that we didn't quite know. So full credit to Dr. Amy Yasko. She uh, has been credited with a lot of her research she's done on autism, especially when looking at genetics. And she considered that the overall observations about the methylation pathway were important. In addition to looking at specific SNPs, as we discussed in the last episode, what those are, which can make sense of some of the larger issues to consider in terms of the pathway, she considers supporting support for the imbalances of the entire methylation pathway or cycle. And her goal was to look at a composite of all the SNPs combined together instead of just this or that. If we bring all these together and all the different dysfunctions through this pathway, how do they affect people? So Dr. Amy looked at the interaction between 30 different SNPs that all go through this pathway, and there's five different components of this, which we're going to go into today. And unlike other studies that only focus on one or two SNPs, she was able to go through and figure some stuff out. So despite one or more serious imbalances in the pathway, an individual's unique combination of SNPs can be viewed as the body's effort to have the methylation cycle function. When more significant or serious SNPs are present, additional SNPs may help to actually compensate and ensure the methylation cycle flows properly or that problematic compounds do not build up in the pathway. While this may seem counterintuitive, having additional SNPs may actually help you normalize the pathway when it's compromised. And so it's important for us to look at these entire pathways overall and be able to understand what we're actually looking at here. So furthermore, this should help us to alleviate the fears for those of us who have a lot of different SNPs in the methylation cycle and be able to understand why it may not be the huge alarm that some people think it is or some of the fear mongering. I think that's going on out there with some of it. People are freaking out, you know, and just because we discovered it, it's like, well, you've lived your whole life with it so far. Is it an issue? Is it something we need to address? Is it something that we need to figure out if we need to come through and, and pinpoint for certain things we need to address. And that's kind of some of the things that we specialize in here. So the methylation cycle has five cycles that it deals with. The urea cycle, and I'm not going to go into a lot of depth because these guys are going to go through it masterfully. The neurotransmitter cycle, folate cycle, methionine cycle, and transsulfuration cycle. Yeah. This complex pathway means that is a means for moving methyl groups in the body to make neurotransmitters, to make thiaminidine, to recycle vitamin B12, and to methylate DNA and other molecules. 
So cycle five involves the detoxification of sulfur from sulfur-containing amino acids. The ammonia that is produced by cycle five is detoxified by cycle one. So it's all linked together, the urea cycle. However, if NOS, nitric oxide synthase, is uncoupled by BH4 depletion, which we're going to get into this here, peroxynitrate is produced. And peroxynitrate is a leading cause for inflammation and can be a root cause for a whole lot of different diseases. And so we're going to kind of talk about how some of these things play into that here. So again, this is a complex situation that may require help from professionals who know how to address these things, not just how to read the report, but actually how to go through and actually address what's going on in your body with that and be able to figure that out. So what do you need currently to address these dysfunctions or other exogenous influences outside of the body that may disrupt your system from toxins, which is in your food, your diet, your environment, to electromagnetic radiation, which is a big one that last 20 to 30 years has really come up because most of it didn't really didn't do much with Wi-Fi, you know, or all the other cell phone towers and everything else we're dealing with until last 20 years. And so these are things that are we're trying to understand what's actually doing. In our body. So, and then the other thing is underlying uh, stealth infections, which you can go back to some of our other podcasts and see all the other things we've done and talked about that these stealth infections aren't being found and there are manipulators from viruses to parasites, Lyme disease, all these other different things in the, in the body that affects us, mold. All these can have an influence and affect how we actually express or suppress our genome. And that's what we're here for. We're helping you to help detangle this mess and help you give better options to live a better life. And so now we're ready to talk about the urea cycle. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Kyson. Yep. So real quick, let's highlight what is a urea cycle? What is a Krebs cycle? And then how is all this going to affect uh, digestion? So the urea cycle, uh, the chief um, function of the urea cycle is to clear ammonia. So ammonia, very toxic in the body, especially in high levels. And ammonia is formed as a, a byproduct during the conversion of cystothionine to cysteine within the transsulfuration pathway. And by the way, this isn't in my notes, but if you see the methylation map, I don't know if I'll have a link to it, but at the very least, if you ever sit down and we're going over a genome report together, we'll pull up the methylation map. And this is a 2D image of trying to conceptualize how these complex uh, biochemical pathways are interacting with one another. So as we talk about the methylation map, that's what we're referring to. It's not like there's a methylation map happening within a cell as it's drawn out. So, so long story short, the urea cycle is a process by which ammonia is converted to urea in the liver. And then that urea is excreted via the kidneys. Okay. So let's stop there. Let's go to the Krebs cycle. The Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle is a biochemical pathway that is involved with the production of what is called ATP. If you're familiar with that, long story short, ATP is our body's fuel or energy that occurs with and is needed for every biochemical process in the body. Now, the Krebs cycle is a process which occurs within the mitochondria of our cells. Okay, so you take carbs, proteins, and fats in our diet, and then all of which are going to be broken down ultimately into a molecule called acetyl-CoA. Okay, acetyl-CoA is then taken from the cytoplasm of our cells, which is basically the fluid within all the small organs or organelles. All right. And then that is going to be that acetyl-CoA taken up into the mitochondria where it enters a cascade or series of biochemical reactions, which ultimately produce a molecule called NADH. All right. And NADH is going to go through what's called the electron transport chain, which is then going to produce our ATP, which is essential again for our body's fuel. And there you go. That's about half a semester or so of biochemistry in a few sentences. <laughs> that was really well done. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> but moral of the story, the Krebs cycle is intimately involved with the production of energy throughout the body and is thus essential for life. All right, now what does this have to do with digestion? So, the urea and the Krebs cycle affect digestion and metabolism in the following ways. First, if you look at the methylation map, you'll notice that the urea cycle and the Krebs cycle are adjacent to one another. All right. The urea cycle kicks off what's called fumarate, which is then going to go into that series or cascade of reactions. That is the Krebs cycle. And then the Krebs cycle is going to kick off aspartate, which combines with arginine to form ornithine, which then helps convert ammonia into urea. So you see these are very intimately connected, the urea cycle and the Krebs cycle. All right, now let's talk about how this affects our digestive process. Real quick crash course on digestion. So the digestion of proteins begins in the stomach. All right, which is where hydrochloric acid and pepsin begin the process of breaking down proteins into their smaller amino acids. As the digested food blob that is called chyme enters into the small intestine, it mixes with bicarbonate, which is very alkaline, and digestive enzymes. The bicarbonate neutralizes the acidic hydrochloric acid in order to protect the small intestine. And the digestive enzymes begin to break down those proteins into smaller peptides and then amino acids. And then you have these digestive hormones that are called secretin and cholecystokinin, which are released from the small intestine to aid in this digestive process. And these digestive proenzymes are released from the pancreas as well. Then you have enterokinase, an enzyme located within the walls of the small intestine, which activates what's called trypsin, and which in turn activates chymotrypsin. And these enzymes liberate the individual amino acids, okay? So we've essentially taken the protein and broken them down into the smallest form, which is amino acids, right? That's all you need to worry about. Then these amino acids are transported into the bloodstream where they are then taken to the liver and the cells throughout the body and can be used to create new proteins. When in excess, the amino acids are processed and stored as glucose or ketones. And the nitrogen waste that is liberated in this process is again converted to urea within the urea cycle and is thus eliminated in the urine. In times of starvation, amino acids can be used as an energy source and processed once again through the Krebs cycle. So to sum up, moral of the story here, and here's your take home. If you have any of the SNPs or genetic variants within the urea cycle genes or the Krebs cycle, this can potentially cause a buildup of toxic ammonia in the body and not getting the essential molecules from the urea cycle to the Krebs cycle and thus potentially causing fatigue due to a dysfunctional Krebs cycle because, again, that's what's producing your ATP. And that's it. That's all I got for you guys. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to Dr. Caleb. All right. Thanks, Dr. Luke. <clears throat> so one thing that I think would be helpful when looking at these cycles or trying to kind of imagine how these cycles work is to think of them as a roundabout or circle intersection. Um, I know a lot of people don't know how those work, but um, <laughs> if you do, then it will really help you understand this process. Okay. Um, so with the roundabout, you enter the cycle at a certain point and you can keep going around the circle until you reach the exit that you need to take. If you mix, miss your exit or are unsure which exit you need to take, the good news is you can keep going round and round and round until you figure it out. Okay. Now in the same way, the body takes these components and can keep spinning them around the cycle, converting to different components um, as the body needs. And if certain ones aren't needed or if they block pathways for some of those then it can cycle all the way back to the beginning and just kind of keep going through until the body needs it <clears throat> okay so the body also helps identify which exit needs to be 
taken by blocking the exits with inhibitor molecules. So as we go through, there's going to be a lot of conversions. Uh, all these conversions happen from enzymes. I'm not going to label all these because, again, we'd have to go into all those alphabets and all the acronyms and things. There are a couple I am going to mention, um, but uh, overall, I'm going to try to keep it pretty simple. So the first cycle I want to talk about is the folate cycle. So what is folate? So folate is also known as vitamin B9. We get it through dietary sources such as green leafy vegetables. Also, that's been um, included in fortified foods and through supplements as the synthetic form of folate, which is usually listed on labels as folic acid. As most of you probably know, uh, folate is most commonly associated with pregnancy as folate metabolism affects ovarian function, implantation, embryogenesis, and the entire process of pregnancy. Associations have also been found between the imbalance of low folate and high homocysteine levels with recurrent spontaneous abortions and other complications of pregnancy. Um, it also has an effect on the incidence of neural tube defects, and some research indicates that it could be linked to the inflammatory aspects of conditions like asthma. So again, as we go through this cycle, we're going to be talking about key hubs or exits. Um, so that folate that comes in is going to be first converted to dihydrofolate or DHF, which is where the cycle circles back to if we go all the way around the roundabout. Uh, DHF is then converted to tetrahydrofolate tetrahydrofolate or THF, which is then converted to 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate or MTHF. So the 5,10-MTHF the is the main hub of the folate cycle, and it can go uh, continue through that pathway um, for nucleic acid or DNA synthesis by um, taking deoxythymidine monophosphate, which is DTMP, or creating that uh, from deoxyuridine monophosphate. And then it can also go through the amino acid protein synthesis. And a key aspect is it can be reduced to 5-MTHF by the MTHFR. Um, we already talked about that some, and uh, Dr. Ben is going to go real in-depth on that here in a little while, so I'm not going to touch on that too much. But when we get down to that 5-MTHF, that can be then moved over to support the BH4 or the neurotransmitter cycle, which again, we're going to cover in another episode. But a key part of that is the um, a methyl group from the 5-MTHF can also be transferred over to the methionine pathway, it actually starts the methionine pathway by converting homocysteine to methionine. I'll get to that more in a little bit. So some of the things that limit the folate cycle, we obviously, B9, a folate vitamin, is needed for the folate cycle to even start. But a lot of the enzymes and conversions occur through support of a lot of other B vitamins like B3, B2, B6. And then when we get into methionine pathway, there's a couple that rely on B12 also. Um, there can be some genetic variant factors that can affect how, um, how well this process occurs. Again, the, probably the most commonly known one is the MTHFR, which again, Dr. Bowers will talk about here more in a little bit. So folate deficiencies can occur because of uh, malfunctions in this pathway. It can also occur due to pregnancy, uh, celiac or IBS, and from alcoholism. 
So as we go into the methionine cycle, again, we take that methyl group from the 5-MTHF from the folate cycle, and we use that to convert homocysteine into methionine. So methionine cycle is also called the methylation cycle, so you can tell this is going to be a big part of that methylation process. Um, key hubs for the methionine cycle, we have S-adenosyl methionine, or SAM, or SAM-E, and um, the methylation from this can go to towards DNA synthesis, uh, phospholipid creation, what can help with catecholamines, and again, protein synthesis. Um, the homocysteine, if it's not converted or go, that's where it kind of goes all the way around that roundabout, and it can continue to convert homocysteine to methionine to keep that cycle spinning, or that homocysteine can be sent to the transsulfuration pathway, which Dr. Cray is going to talk about in a moment. Um, so again, you know, all this process you can uh, is going to go towards a lot of different functions in the body. It's going to go towards a lot of the uh, DNA expression or the genetic expression and turning on or off certain genetic components. Um, so one of the key things to take away from this is, you know, B vitamins are really key drivers of these cycles. And it's uh, really, even as I was going through this, I learned a lot more just how important the B vitamins are for you. And, um, you know, some of these components as we go through, you know, I said that uh, the body can put up inhibitors or use inhibiting molecules to kind of create roadblocks in certain pathways. So some examples of that is like the SAMe coming back and blocking some of the conversion factors in the folate cycle. Um, some of the aspects from the folate cycle can go in and affect the BH4 cycle or the transsulfuration pathway. So a lot of these are so interconnected. And the good thing is the body is able to kind of direct you know, the components where they need to go through the conversion processes they need to go so the body gets what it needs most at the time. Um, and I think that's all I have. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Craig unless you guys want to add something else in. So when you're talking about getting stuck in the roundabout there, I kept having flashbacks to uh, European vacation. Look, kids, <laughs> Big Ben. <laughs> Look, kids, Big Ben. <laughs> Take it away. Thanks, Dr. Caleb. Well, as Dr. Kyson said, transsulfuration is basically the process of eliminating or detoxifying sulfur from the body, where the body basically takes it and moves it from homocysteine to cystothionine to cysteine, and then through a few other intermediate steps to a sulfite form into a sulfate form, and then it's eliminated from the body. I want to touch on just a couple of things here real quick that I think are important. Um, I'm going to mention a couple of the SNPs that can get involved here. The first one is the CBS uh, enzyme which basically is a process of taking the sulfur from homocysteine to cystothionine. Dr. Caleb mentioned homocysteine. If, if we have a block here, then we're not converting that as fast and we can start to get a buildup of homocysteine within the body. One of the easiest ways you can look for this is do an H score on your blood work. Um, this is really important because high levels of homocysteine can be very damaging to the vascular system which then can lead to cardiovascular disease and a whole other gamut of issues. So um, if you have a history of cardiovascular disease, this may be one area you want to look at of going, okay, is this a factor and and why that's a problem within our family line. Then as we go from cystothionine 
to cysteine, you have what's called CTH enzyme. Uh, what I want to think about here is if we don't have good conversion here, then we get a buildup of cystathionine, which as Dr. Luke talked about, this, were, this is a component where ammonia gets shifted into the urea cycle. So if we're not getting that conversion, we're going to start to get a buildup of urea and we're not going to get that process to work as good. And now we start to put stress on the urea system, which then starts to create digestive issues and energy issues and all other kinds of things. And it, it, it's, again, so fascinating how all this stuff is intertwined. Then what we want to talk about is how what's done with, cyst with cysteine. Cysteine is one of the components of glutathione, which is one of your most important antioxidant and detoxification products. Um, it's also involved in hormone production, especially stress hormones as well. So this is an important component as well. If we're not able to take that cysteine and get it converted into the glutathione, now we can have hormonal dysregulation. We can have increased stress hormones, which then increases heart rate, blood pressure, and now add that to if you have a homocysteine issue, and now we're really compounding on, on the problem here. So the other thing that's interesting with this too is if we don't get conversion to glutathione, one of the other components in glutathione is glutamate. And if we start to get increased glutamate, glutamate is very neuroexcitatory, and now we can have sleep issues. And especially if you also add in a problem with the GAD gene, uh, now you don't get converted GABA and you really can't calm down. You can't rest. These are the people that really struggle to sleep at night. One of the things I forgot to mention back up to that cystathionine and the ammonia, this is where brain fog can really come into play. That's probably actually what I had there in that moment. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. I had a little brain fog. So um, one other impact here within this system is the conversion from sulfite to sulfates. And this is the SUOX gene. If we have an issue there, sulfite can be very inflammatory and create a lot of allergic reactions within the body as well. So if you're dealing with that, this is a possible area that this is problematic. So one of the things that I'll just add to and encourage, if you have any of these symptoms, this is one way to evaluate it. I highly encourage you to consider doing this evaluation to figure out what's going on with your system along with all the other stuff that we do to get at this. But I just, I think this is really interesting in our office, detox is one of those other big things. And we talk about stealth infections being very important. Detoxification is vitally important to our body because if you can't detoxify, you're toxic and you can't be healthy when you're toxic. So with that in mind, I'm going to let Dr. Bowers finish it and tie it up in a nice, simple bow because this is a simple subject. Oh, of course. Of course. So I'm going to touch on a couple of things that have been talked about. First of all, what I love about Dr. Kaiser brought up with Dr. Amy Asko and I want you to think about this. She was interested in what? Autism. The effects of specific pathways of the genome and how it affected autism. And what we just went through here, which was really complicated, one of the things we talked about in epigenetics is taking the complexity of all this and trying to understand where they apply, right? As we said previously, you know, a single snip means nothing by itself. But you look at all the places that that SNP can affect, and you start putting that in the systems, now the complexity becomes more significant, okay? And so when you think about what Dr. Yasko did, when she looked at this from an autism aspect, in general, I know this is a real short term, but it's, you take a healthy child that somehow over the next one to four years becomes autistic. Why? Right? That was her, her main aspect of that. Then when we look at the methionine cycle, and as we look at what uh, Dr. Caleb brought up, and you start looking at this thing affects our own DNA, how we create or replicate our DNA, 
Then when you look at that aspect and we start talking about the folate, and we forget sometimes there is the embryonic phase of the folate to an adolescent phase of folate to an adult phase of the folate. And what's the significance of that? The younger or older you are and you impregnate or get pregnant, right, it's going to determine what happens to that aspect of the folate, right? Then when you look at the urea and the ammonia effects on the entire methylation pathway, as Dr. Luke talked about, it cycles all the way back around. What I find interesting in that is it affects every aspect of this methylation pathway. When we talk about these five different categories and there's six attachment categories to that, and all of a sudden we start understanding what happens to us as adults, which is what Dr. Craig brought up when we looked at the homocysteine aspect of that and the ammonia aspect of that, as both the other doctors did as well, Luke and Dr. Caleb. Now we start talking about when that interaction goes in there, we start getting less energy. What happens when we get less energy? We get more stress. What happens when we get more stress? We get more mood alteration, right? And then when you understand that the stealth infections affect the messenger RNA and the transcriptase RNA, and that is virus or virions, bacteria or bacteriophages, and for sure we know that it's in parasites, parasitical infections, those stealth infections, they change our own DNA. And so the significance of this methylation pathway is to understand our ability uh, to respond in the internal environment to the external environment. Wow, that's why this is so important and why I get so excited about it. So today I'm gonna talk about a pretty commonly known gene as Dr. Caleb brought up called the MTHFR gene, or as one of our patients says, the mother heifer gene. Right. So what is the MTFHR gene and what does it do and why is it so famous? Well, first of all, MTHFR is not a disease. It's a gene. And for those of you watching, this is kind of like a mic drop moment. It's like, ta-da, it's not a disease, <laughs> right? It is a gene or genome, right? Most people have been tested and been told they have the MTHFR gene and believe that this is the cause of either birth defects and or the cause of most, if not all, diseases. As Dr. Uh, uh, Kaisha brought up, I think it was last episode you brought that up, it's like, oh, my child has MTHFR, what do we do, what do we do, right? Wow, well, is it or is it not a significant issue? Let me start by explaining that in the methylation pathway, there are three different types of keys that are needed and they affect every single cell in our body. The first one's what I call the enzymatic triad key, and we'll discuss that later. The second one's called the D3 key, we'll also discuss that one later. And the third one that we're talking about today is the Bethel key. Without those three keys, you're stuck in the, in the roundabout. You never get out. And those tell us that those are either the instigators or the blockers in that roundabout to make all this work. So this next is, <laughs> sentence is very complicated, but I want you to hear me out because this is the, the significance of what it really means. To create a methyl key, which is one of the three keys every sing, single cell needs, you must be able to methylate. To be able to methylate, you must be able to methionate. And to methionate, you must be able to folate. Pretty simple. Methylfolate plays an important role in making neurotransmitters such as serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine, which is what helps regulate our moods. And that's where the MTHFR comes in. So what is MTHFR? MTHFR stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme. I say that really fast. That, that, that. It's a gene that makes a very important enzyme that converts the folate, the B9, that you eat into its active and biological form of methylfolate. This process is very necessary when you have to make new cells, 
make a baby, right? And regulate the DNA methylation, the DNA synthesis, and the DNA repair. SNPs, or polymorphisms that we talked about in the MTTFR gene, can affect the body's ability to process amino acids, specifically increased homocysteine, as Dr. Craig brought up, which is the possible risk factor for a variety of common conditions or adverse health outcomes. This can affect people differently, but can range from high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, hypertension, blood clots, glaucoma, mood and mental to psychiatric disorders, and even certain types of cancers. And yes, it can also be a cause of fertility issues as it specifically can reduce the quality of both the sperm and the egg. And sometimes we forget about the sperm side of that. In addition to those issues, there are many different B vitamins that are needed, and each one plays an important role in the body. However, not all B vitamins are affected by the MTTFR SNPs. The specific ones that do affect the B vitamins are B6, B9, and B12, and these are all essential for optimal health. So B6, pyridoxine, helps in the production of energy, protein metabolism, and nervous system functioning. B9, the folate, helps in the production of DNA, cell growth and replication, and red blood cell formation. And the B12, cobalamin, helps in the production of the nerve cells, the DNA synthesis, and red blood cell formation. And after hearing all this is where a lot of the confusion generally comes in. Most people here who hear that they have an MTHFR gene issue do not understand the digestive processes, the amino acids, the organic acids, the B vitamins, the nutrition, the hormones, the neurotransmitters, and their role in this methylation process of the MTHFR and whether it is being expressed or not. So when people tell me they have an MTHFR issue or gene, I ask them, which one? They used to look at me funny and say something like, well, the bad one. I explain, well, first of all, there are three different categories of polymorphisms in the MTHFR gene. And when you only focus on the MTFR gene and you're not looking at the whole picture, you're only looking at the middle of the pathway. Let's go back to your roundabout. Where does it begin? Where does it end? But you're always in the middle, <laughs> right? So the first one of the three categories I want to talk about is the C677T genome that impacts the methionine cycle, more significantly affecting B9 folate and B12 methylcobalamin. Those who do not have any SNPs here are sometimes what we refer to as the get-or-done gene or the warrior gene. And these people are good at getting things accomplished. Another aspect is that they're also theorized that the SNPs here can lead to a more stressful component and have a more aggressive behavior. This can lead to increased frustrations and irritability as well as higher incident rate of levels of depression. People with SNPs in this genome are significantly more common to have a history of a depressive disorder. And those with a SNP of this genome also seem to be more commonly associated with having or developing some form of autoimmunity. Now, we all gotta, we're also going to consider not just that one SNP, we got to put that in the whole pathway to make sure we're understanding what else is happening in that pathway, because this is the middle phase of all those happening. The second category is the A1298C genome, which impacts more significantly the B9 absorption and utilization, and to a lesser impact, the B12 or the methylcobalamin. Those who do not have any SNPs here are good at analyzing circumstances, and sometimes you refer to this genome as the analytical brain or the worrier brain. SNPs here can lead to either under-analyzing and causing impulsive behaviors, or the increased aspect of worry or becoming over-worried or simply thinking too much. <laughs> SNPs here also are tied to higher levels of fibromyalgia, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, fatigue, 
chronic pain, schizophrenia, and mood-related problems. This effect, uh, this can also affect other genomes that lead to what we call the beginning of the brain drain issue. Because as Dr. Caleb talks about, it goes all the way back to the DHFR, and that's where, as Dr. Kaisen brought up, it affects the nitric oxide synthesase, which now when the body starts draining the brain of nitric oxide to make all these other factors work, it's going to start causing some brain fog. Once again, these also need to be considered in line with other genomes because it has a major effect on them. The third category is what we generally refer to as the other category of MTHFR, which consists of more than 60 plus different genomes. Now, we think there's about 14 to 18 of them that are really specific, but they are the ones that cause some other issues that either increases or decreases the potentiation of either the C67T or the A1298C. This is also compounded by the fact that you have a sing if you have a single SNP in either one of these, the first or second gene, that will reveal one aspect in the other. So just because we have one, it has multitude effects. And if you have another one, it has other multitude effects. And then if you have a progenitor underneath that, it affects them even to a greater level. So the last part of this topic has to deal with MTHFR and weight issues. What? What's MTHFR? The mother ever got to do with being obese? Well, they've been increased with the risk of obesity and weight gain. Studies have shown that people with the MTHFR SNP are more likely to have higher levels of homocysteine, Dr. Craig brought up, and that may contribute to obesity by affecting the metabolism of folate. A recent study suggested that SNPs within the C677T increased the risk of obesity by at least 20%. A meta-analysis that looked at 8,622 cases and 29,695 controls found that the MTHFR C677T is associated with an increase of obesity and increased homocysteine levels in the blood and agreed with the consensus that these variations do cause weight gain. So then how does MTHFR polymorphism mutations contribute to weight gain and or obesity, let alone weight loss? Well, the first thing it does, it decreases metabolism, which then increases fat accumulation, which then increases appetite and mood alteration, which then increases hormone imbalances. And then the roundabout continues, right? So by now you may be wondering if you or someone you know has an MTHFR mutation, or you may be wondering how common are these MTHFR uh, SNPs. In general, the general population, 60 to 70% of individuals have at least one of these variants. 8.5% have a single SNP in either the C677T or A1298C, and 2.25% have a double SNP in either one of those categories as well. This equates to about 30 to 40% of the American population will have some mutation in the C677 gene, and 7 to 15% of the American population will have a mutation in the A1298C genome. Now, generally, we talk about the A1298C doesn't have that much effect on the totality of the life, but it has a derogatory effect, which means it slows down all the other processes that make the body spend energy in other places it shouldn't have to. Overall, it's estimated that up to half the population have inherited one or some of these MTHFR polymorphisms. As Dr. Kaisen said earlier, okay, so you got one. What's that mean? Is it expressed? Is it not expressed? And we can't take it in its single nature. We have to put it in the combined nature because of all these things we've talked about in this methylation patch way that bring this up. 
So in conclusion, since MTHFR variations can affect the body's ability to metabolize B6, B9, and B12, which can also impact the conversion of homocysteine to methionine, this can have a number of negative health effects, highlighting the importance of identifying and managing if you have any MTHFR gene variations that's causing you some problems. And understanding that these same MTHFR SNPs can affect weight gain and even obesity, it's critical to reduce inflammation, improve nutritional uptake, and help optimize your methylation process. Therefore, it's important for those of you listening to work with some type of healthcare provider who can help them understand how their genetics may be affecting their health and develop a very unique and appropriate specific treatment plan, which, oh, by the way, is exactly what we do. Okay, so in our next episode, we're going to discuss some pretty unique uh, things coming up, how genomes can be turned on or off and their significance of being able to do that, how diet-specific nutrition affects the genome, how the DNA can be reprogrammed by words and frequencies, and then the diseases that are affected with the genome, and then lastly, what stress and exercise does on the effects of the genome. So God bless, and we'll be looking forward to you listening to our next episode. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.